Thanks, Gino. Good morning, everyone. I am loving being together on Sunday mornings. I'm loving getting into the Word of God. I'm loving this year of the Bible. We're only like two weeks in, and I'm loving it. If you're new here and or are visiting and are unfamiliar with what's going on, our church family right now has launched into something that we're calling the Year of the Bible 2022. We are walking through the Bible and studying it and discussing it with other believers and then talking about it on the weekends as well. And already I have heard so much excitement around conversations that have been happening, so much excitement about peop- uh, from people who are thankful that we are walking through Scripture and talking about it. Um, and really, yeah, I, I know that there are parts of the reading plan that script that or parts of Scripture that the reading plan skips. That's not a shocker to me. I'm like, oh man, I didn't know that was there. We are trying to do something to encourage everyone to get into Scripture. And what's better, so many people start off the year with a a reading plan that goes, I'm going to read five pages a day to read 100% of scripture throughout the year. And they start off with that ambition, and then they do it for like two weeks, and then then life happened, and they got behind, and then it turns into this up and down roller coaster of reading five chapters once a month. What's far better than reading five chapters of scripture once a month is reading one to two chapters every day. And so getting into that routine and that habit of reading scripture, putting your eyes on it for yourself daily is what we're going for. That's the goal that we're looking at. And if if we take one to two chapters a day and read it and stop and, and think critically about what we just read, meditate on it, think about it, ask ourselves questions about what we read, I believe we're going to see and are already seeing fruit of what God can do when his people get into his word. Last week we began the year of the Bible, of course, in the origin stories of Genesis, which are chapters 1 through 11. And in a sense, that's the prologue of Genesis. And chapter 12 takes a significant turn in both the focus and the style. Even though chapters 1 through 11 do highlight different individual characters like Adam and Noah and all the genealogies of each generation from Adam to Noah, these characters are primarily, or I'm sorry, these chapters are primarily purposed to explain how the world and humanity came to be and how we found ourselves in such a mess, that mess that we're in today. Then in chapter 11, we saw this city and this tower called Babel, where all the people of the earth, in their wickedness and in the ungodliness of their hearts, go, you know what, let's unite together, let's work together, let's build this tower to the heavens. And uh, essentially they stopped, if you read chapter 11, you would have seen, they didn't build with stones anymore, they started making bricks, and that's also symbolic of the fact that they were trying to claim autonomy from God. They're saying, let's make a name for ourselves, let's gather together, let's build this tower, let's stop using stone, let's make brick, and we can build this massive tower and we'll make a name for ourselves. God goes, no, I'm not going to let wicked humanity unite that way, and separates them all by giving them all different languages. And they spread out and land according to their tribes and according to their languages. Now in chapters 12 through 25... The story zooms in to focus on one man, Abram, who would be chosen by God 
to begin this redemption story. You remember last week in Genesis chapter 3, when God's pronouncing judgments on man and woman and on the serpent for their sin, for the deception of the serpent, God tells the serpent, hey, I'm going to put enmity between you and the seed of the woman, and you, uh, your seed will strike his heel, and he will crush your head. That's the first prophecy of the Messiah that would come to crush and destroy the works of that serpent, representing Satan. And so now Abram, after we've had the prologue of chapters 1 through 11, setting the framework for our fallen world and why it is the way it is today, chapter 12 then turns the page to zoom in and focus on this man named Abram who God has chosen to begin the story of this redemption that he promised in Genesis chapter 3. Now consider this. This is thousands of generations, or I'm sorry, thousands of years, many generations. Even in chapter 11, as it accounts the lineage from Noah's son Shem to Abraham, each descendant that's named, it says, and they lived this many years and had other sons and daughters. For a lot of generations, it would say this person, and they lived this long and had many other sons and daughters. And this person lived, and they lived this long and had, this, uh, had many other sons and daughters. That's a lot of detail and a lot of info that was left out. There's a lot there that we don't know. Entire generations, thousands of years, thousands of events we could have learned about, thousands of things we could have had insight into, but God did not think it was necessary for the purpose of this Genesis account to give us all the details of all those generations and everything that happened therein. Again, which points to the fact that this book was written in a way that serves the purposes of the whole Bible. Last week we talked about this term, the meta-narrative of Scripture. That the Bible is not a bunch of isolated little stories with moral points for us to take from each individual little story. Rather, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is one story about Jesus. That everything in Scripture is either laying the groundwork leading up to Jesus or revealing Jesus, like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the epistles and stuff, looking back and explaining what Jesus did and the implications it has on our lives today, or the apocalyptic literature of Revelation pointing to what Jesus will yet do and what it will mean for us in the future. It's all one story. Are there moral indicatives? Yeah. Are there ways that this has implications on our lives and our morality and lessons we can glean from it? Yes, absolutely. But if we forget that this is one story about Jesus, we're going to lose a lot of the purpose of why it was written the way it was written. So as we prepare to begin back in Genesis chapter 12 now, where we meet Abram, the son of Terah, it's important we, we consider a few things. We're not we don't know a lot about this guy named Abram at this point. There's only a couple of things that it tells us from chapter 11 into chapter 12, namely that Abram was the son of Terah, and he was from this place called Ur of the Chaldeans. That'd be like saying uh, Abram from Sheboygan Falls, Wisconsin. Ur was a city in the region of the Chaldeans in the, in the country of um, Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia. So we know that he's from Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. He's the son of Terah. Apart from that, we don't know anything else about this guy 
except for one really important thing. That whole point that he's the son of Terah is Terah was one that was named in those lineages. When we go again to Genesis chapter 5, where we see the lineage from Adam to Noah, and then in Genesis chapter 11, from Noah to Terah, Abraham, that lineage is put there so that we can again see this is the line that this promised Messiah would come through. So Abram is a man who is qualified to be the one whom seed would bring about that Messiah. It's important that we recognize that. Just like the prologue, the origin in chapter 1, this next episode focusing on a man named Abram begins with a divine decree from God. So if you've got your Bible, Genesis chapter 12, we're going to pick up at the beginning of the story of this man named Abram. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you are a highlighter or underliner, underline or highlight or circle or whatever you need to do, that statement, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Continuing in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, so his nephew, and all their possessions and all they had gathered and all the people that he had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord, Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. See, notice Abram's part of this deal. We have this Abram who we see comes from the lineage from, from Adam to Noah all the way to this guy Abram. And what we know about him is that he came from that region and God speaks to him and says, hey, I want you to leave everything you know. I want you to leave your family, leave your country, leave your people, and I want you to go to a place that I will tell you. He's not even saying, I want you to go to Canaan. He's saying, you're going to go, and you're going to go to a place that I will tell you. Notice, Abram's part of the deal is summarized in one clear command. This command to go. God's telling Abram, go. Then notice the rest of this deal, so to speak, this command that's got, that God is giving, the brunt of the responsibility prescribed here is on God himself. Notice how many times in this passage he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Let's look at it again. Picking up in verse 1 again. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land 
I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. God tells Abram, go to a place I'm going to show you. And when you do, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. He's making it clear. I'm asking you to do this, and I'm heaping promises upon you that you can trust. See, there's one theme Genesis wants us to learn pretty early. This is even back in the opening chapters and again here today. That is, if God said it, he will do it. If God said it, he will do it. What do you mean? Does that mean that that God's a promise keeper? Yeah, absolutely, but more than that. The things that God declares of Scripture, usually, almost always, he's giving his people commands, things that he wants them to do, things he wants them to act on, trusting his word, but he also makes it clear he's the one who's going to bring this stuff to pass. In fact, as we look through Scripture, when we think about what we read last week and discussed even with Noah, God tells Noah, hey, I want you to make this really, really big boat. And he's basically telling him, when you do it, I'm going to bring a flood on the earth. Now, how long do you think it took Noah to build that boat? A long time. How long do we see as we've read these last few chapters in Genesis that God tells Abram, hey, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you more descendants than the stars in the sky that you could try and count. But we see that that was reiterated in chapter 15 when he was 75 years old. And then we see It's not until he's around 100 that God actually brings that promise to pass. And also what we can see is that God gives Abraham, or Abram at the time, promises that will actually outlive him. He says, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And if we went to Hebrews chapter 11, in fact, uh, Andrew, I know that's in my notes later in the sermon, but I'm going to go ahead and flip there real quick. Hebrews chapter 11 Verses 8 through 10, it says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now that's getting into a few chapters we haven't got into yet, but what we can see throughout scripture is that God makes promises and God fulfills promises in a way where there's no room for anyone to think that man made it happen. He wants to make it clear that God makes his promises and he keeps his word. That's why he waited to fulfill the promise with Abram and Sarai until it was obvious that their bodies couldn't make it happen. Waited till they were old, so much so that God reiterates this promise to Sarah in a few chapters from now, and she laughs. She's like, <laughs> are, are you serious, God? I'm pretty old. I'm, the, the days of childbearing are gone from me, she says. And God's going, yeah, isn't that great? That means no one's going to think you did it everyone's going to look at that and go, what in the world? They've been barren for a hundred years, 
And all of a sudden, uh, you remember this Abram? He's saying they're going to have some promised kid from God. They're 100 years old. Yeah, right. That dude is nuts, is what people must have been saying. Lo and behold, 100 years old, God gives them Isaac. Now, in between there, we can see they got a little impatient and tried to take matters on their own hands. And even to this day, in the Middle East, we see war between two people groups because of that disobedience and that not trusting God and trying to make his promise happen on their own. Today, there is war happening in the Middle East because Abram stopped believing for a moment the promise of God and tried to make it happen on his own. If God said it, he will do it. It's something scripture wants us to believe and understand and it makes clear. We can see later in, in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, it says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said it, will he not uh, do it? Has he spoken it and will he not make it good? We could see in Titus chapter 1 and 2 that he talks about the hope of life eternal that God promised and that God cannot lie. In Hebrews 6.18, it says it is impossible for God to lie. In Romans chapter 3 verse 4, it says, let God be true, though every man were a liar. Even if and even because every man is a liar, God is true. Scripture wants us to see and know and have a backbone to stand on the foundation that God keeps his promises. Consider Noah. God told him some pretty outlandish stuff. And Noah believed God and obeyed. And he was saved by his belief. Abram is being told to leave his comfort zone. All that he knows. To leave his family, his, his country. Listen, you, did you know that Wisconsin... I can't remember, I heard this statistic a couple of years ago, and so I'm a little foggy on it, but it's either that Wisconsin is like number one or really close to number one of states in the U.S. that people are born in, stay in, live in, and die in. Wisconsin's up there, if it's not first, for places where people are born, stay, live, and die, never move away, or if they do, come back, that people stay here and live. And listen, let me tell you, I get it. I've lived in Virginia, Florida, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, and now Wisconsin. And let me tell you something, guys. Wisconsin's awesome. I love living in Wisconsin. Oh, but Pastor Stephen, it was four, eight, or four degrees this morning. I know. I've lived where it's just hot all year. Oh, but that sounds so nice and warm. People always say this when, when they say, why would, why would you move from nice, warm Texas to freezing cold Wisconsin. I'm like, your adjectives are wrong. It is not nice, warm Texas. I was in Houston near the Gulf. It is nasty, hot Texas. I remember a month straight of temperatures over 100 degrees with close to 100% humidity where you walk outside, and I'm not exaggerating, I am not, I'm not magnifying this for comic relief. You walk outside, and within three seconds, you have sweat beating down your forehead. Give me Wisconsin all day long. Listen, I grew up where we regularly, at least once a week, would kill a copperhead or a water moccasin or a rattlesnake in our yard as little kids. 
Give me Wisconsin. I grew up where there were black widows and brown recluses, and you had to check your shoes every day when you put your shoes on because there could be a brown recluse in your shoe waiting to bite your toe and make it swell up like it got stomped on or something like that. Give me Wisconsin. I lived in, Wisconsin, or I lived in Arkansas, Tornado Alley, where it wasn't a question, are we going to get tornadoes this year? No, we're getting tornadoes. Give me Wisconsin. I lived in Houston area where every single year you're sitting here going, are we going to get a hurricane this year? Is it going to flood again this year? Give me Wisconsin. Okay, I went on on my little rant right there. I just sometimes you need to be reminded of what you have because sometimes you don't know what you got until you leave and you come back. and You're like, oh, thank you, Lord. Wisconsin's wonderful. God calls Abraham or Abram into the unknown. I got a little girl, so you know what that just triggered in my head. Into the unknown. God gives a command to Abram, but he attaches some pretty incredible promises. Some more outlandish stuff considering Abe was 75 years old with no kids. He gives him some some things that might be hard to believe, but... In light of how hard it was to believe them, here's what we see that's different about Abram and everyone else, is that Abram hears God's word, believes it, and obeys. Contrasted against these opening chapters where we saw Adam and Eve, who knew the command of God and believed the lie and thereby disobeyed. And God begins the redemption story, this path through this family with this man, Abram, who believes God and obeys what God said. The most important part we need to pay attention to in this passage is that, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God tells Abram that he will bless him so that he will be a blessing. Pay attention to that. God's blessing did not terminate on Abram. It wasn't about him. It was about way more than him. It's about how the Messiah would be born through his bloodline someday, which is a blessing to all the families of the earth. But this is way over Abram's head at this point. That's way over his head. Initially, God promises to bless him with land and with possessions and descendants. And next week in our reading and in our teaching, we'll see that after it took a little longer, Then Abram and Sarah liked God in his perfect timing, in his perfect timing, in his perfect timing, fulfilled the first step of his promise in giving them a son, Isaac, in their old age. Let's flip now to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. We're going to read, again, starting in verse 1. A a few things have happened here. Abram, they, they go away to Egypt. Uh, because of a famine, and then they come back, and they fight all these different countries, and lots of crazy, like, war stuff happens in those chapters. Interesting stuff I'd encourage you to read on your own time if you haven't yet. But then they're, they're coming back, and, and Abram has victory over these enemies and rescues his nephew Lot, who is captured. And then he offers this worship, this sacrifice to God through this mysterious king-priest named Melchizedek. And after this, we pick up In chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
And here we go. We get, we get a little shade of the humanity of Abram here. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, saying, All of my inheritance is going to go to this guy who's not even in my family. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars if you're able to number them. There's a little bit of like sarcastic humor almost there. Telling Abraham, go ahead and number the stars if you're able. Go ahead and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6, here's another one to underline, highlight. And he believed the Lord and he counted him as righteous. (coughs) Excuse me. He believed the Lord, and he counted him as righteous. Notice it's not telling us that Abram offered sacrifices, and he was counted as righteous. It's not telling us Abram obeyed, or did some act, or did some deed, and was counted as righteous. He believed God, and was counted as righteous. He believed God and was counted as righteous. We can see now in the New Testament, just like last week where we looked at what happened in the opening chapters of Genesis with the first Adam, and then we flipped forward to the New Testament, Romans 5, to see what happened with the second Adam, Jesus, remembering all of Scripture points to Jesus. Then as we read this, let's flip to Galatians chapter 3 really quick. Galatians chapter 3, because we need to see something else. Because what we know of the story is that Abram does have this son Isaac, and Isaac has this son Jacob, and Jacob becomes Israel, and Israel becomes the nation, the people of God. These people are, that are descendant, descendant from Abraham that believe that they're the people of God because they descended from Abraham. And it goes all the way, thousands and thousands of years, up until the day that Jesus is there, and even today... The Israelites, the Jews today, believe they are the people of God because they descended from Abraham, and they're right, but not exclusively, not exclusively. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, Paul talking to the church in Galatia. He says this, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Again, one more time, let's step back and see the thread of the one story through Scripture. Remember, in Genesis chapter 12, the verse that we underlined and highlighted when God told Abraham, get out of here, go to a place I'll tell you, leave your family, leave all you know, I will bless you, I will make your name great, you will be a blessing, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you, and in you 
all families of the earth shall be blessed. You fast forward thousands of years to the Apostle Paul talking to the church in Galatia. He's saying, listen, it's not those who were just born from Abraham that are the people of God. It is those who have faith in God just like Abraham did in chapter 15 where it says he believed God and it was accounted to him or credited to him as righteousness. That Abraham was a man of God counted right before God because he believed the word of God. And Paul is telling the church, the people after Jesus died on the cross and rose again, to the people who are living in the same era as you and me, saying, just like Abraham, we are counted righteous before God by our faith in Jesus Christ. Why do we need to hear this over and over and over? Because we think, even when we know the truth, that it's our faith that makes us right with God, we still fall into over and over and over thinking that we're right with God because we're good people. And Romans chapter 3 goes, nope, you're not good. There's none good. None are righteous. No, not one. No, no one seeks after God. No one understands. We're all bad. And we are only righteous by faith in God's word, faith in who Jesus Christ is. Let's look at that again. Verse 7, know then that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. How many of you in here are not a Jew? Talking about your descendants. Not a Jew, raise your hand. I'll like raise most of mine because I'm like a 16th Jewish. So I've got that one up on you. But Gentile is talking about you. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. He says, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, meaning our guilty sin would be washed away, and God in the royal courtroom, in the heavenly courtroom, would say, not guilty. That's what justification means. Not guilty before God by faith. Watch this. He's talking about what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, preached the gospel. That God preached the gospel to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We think the gospel is something that's only preached in the New Testament. And God's saying, no, the gospel was being preached to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, saying, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We are blessed with faithful Abraham when, like Abraham, we place our faith and our confidence in the word of God and the works of God. What was the first point, Andrew? Can you put it up again? That very first point that we made today? If God said it, he will do it. God said that he would make way for us to belong to him, and he did it. He accomplished it on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's some good news, y'all. One more time, what we see here, similar but different, is that God keeps his promises. God keeps keeps his promises. Well, what's different than that and what you said earlier, Pastor Stephen, that if he said it, he will do it? Well, that's more emphasizing that God will make the things happen. This is emphasizing that if God makes a promise, he will keep it. The clearly displayed attribute of God throughout all of Scripture, over and over, that, that we need to see and believe is that God is faithful. God is faithful when you are suffering. 
What a wonderful salve to our soul is it to know that God is faithful. When you're confused, when you're lonely, what a comfort to our soul to know that God is faithful. When you look at what's happening in the world in 2020 and 2021, and uh uh-oh, still probably 2022, isn't it a comfort to the soul of the child of God to know God is faithful? But also what is abundantly clear in Scripture is that the life of the believer is a life of patient endurance as we hold on to God's promises and faith, trusting his timing and rejoicing at all times. Notice the, the timeline we see in Scripture of when promises are made and when they're fulfilled, it's usually a long time. It's usually a long time. The people of God are given promises and then God steps back and waits to see if those people are going to trust him. He waits to see if they're going to believe that he's going to bring his word to pass, that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. And God lets us sit there sometimes waiting to see if we're going to trust him or if we're going to slip into unbelief like Abram did and try and make things happen on our own. If we're going to try and make God come through for us and make a mess of what he wants to do in our lives. God keeps his promises. Well, Pastor Stephen, if God keeps his promises and the Bible says X, Y, Z, then how come A, B, C in my life? I guess it's backward. If the Bible says A, B, C, then how come X, Y, Z in my life? If, If God keeps his promises, then how come this stuff is happening in my life? How come if the Bible says this, that I'm going through this? And how come if the Bible says that this, then why am I experiencing this and going through this? Listen, It's important that we understand there are people in the world who treat the Bible as if it is cover to cover, word for word, all of it is promises to be claimed. And that's not true. That's a mishandling, a misunderstanding of Scripture. Let me give you an example. The ministry I used to work at in Texas when I, before I had my theology change, I remember the president, pastor, founder of the ministry, always, over and over, we would go into these spells of declaring Scriptures over ourselves claiming promises of God. And one of the things he would say is, I declare today according to Luke 2.52 that you have favor with God and with man. That sounds great. But if you read Luke 2.52, it's talking about when Jesus was a little boy, it says, and he, he grew in wisdom and in stature and increased in favor with God and with man. This is the narrative story about little boy Jesus growing up in wisdom Literally, getting taller and increasing in favor with God and with man. And he'd take that narrative story about Jesus' life and take it and say, that's my promise to declare that I have favor with God and with man. No, that's a story about Jesus. That's not a promise for you to claim. Now, we do have favor with God, and God does give us favor with man at different points in his life according to his purposes, but it's dangerous to just cherry pick any random little verse that we want out of the Bible and claim it as a promise for us today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hurt some feelings this morning. One of the most common verses that this is done with, oh man, I'm, okay Lord, I'm going to stand before you. I'm going to give an account to you for what I teach. Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans of good, not of evil. Plans to prosper you, give you a future and a hope. What a beautiful promise that he gave to the Israel, the country of Israel. 
in Babylonian exile. And it says, in fact, it says to those <laughs> in exile and captivity. Here's the promise. What we don't see or what we just take that one verse and forget the rest of the context is he also says 70 years from now. Now think about it. If you were a member of the family of God, the people of God, and let's just say you're 50 years old and you're in Babylonian captivity and exile and you're going, God, we belong back home. Yeah, I know we sinned, but you got to take us back home. And it tells us a few chapters earlier that there was this false prophet named Hananiah who was going around telling everybody, we're only going to be here for two years. And Jeremiah, the true prophet of God, says, lies. Actually, guys, we're going to be here for 70 years. Now, what if you're 50 years old and you hear, I know the plans that I have for you, plans of good, not of evil, plans to give you a future and a hope, plans to prosper you. And you're going to get out of here 70 years from now. The 50-year-old's going, I'm going to die here. So many times we can read, again, Hebrews chapter 11, where all these faithful patriarchs believed God, lived and acted in faith according to the word of God. And it says in chapter 11, having not received what was promised to them. For thousands of years already, Generation after generation after generation, the people of God, like you and me, are going, Jesus is coming back soon. And it's true. And we should be eagerly looking forward to that, going, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, come now. I'm looking at the world. It would be awesome if you came now. Jesus, come on, Maranatha, come, Lord. That's been going on for 2,000 years. And listen, I see the news, and I know what's going on. And I know that there's plenty of things that are being fulfilled today in our lives. But if we're not careful, we'll look at biblical promises and prophecy and we'll do what the Thessalonians did and kick up our heels and going, hey, Kesarasara, Jesus is coming back. Whatever we, whatever, Lord, woohoo, let's, let's not be stewards of what God has given us. Let's not work because God's coming back. We have to examine the context of things to understand if it is a promise for us and for today. Now, I know in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen in their context. And so, if you want to claim Jeremiah 29, 11, that says, I know the plans I have for you, plans of good, not of evil, plans to, uh, to prosper you, give you a future and a hope. Man, that absolutely is something that I can go, man, I know that God does have plans for me. Plans to give me a future and a hope? Yes, absolutely. Does that mean that it's going to look like that in my lifetime. Not necessarily, because that wasn't the case for many whom that promise was given to. What's a promise that I would rather substitute that for in our lives is Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So in the midst of my trial, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your whatever you might be going through, you have an anchor, a promise from God for us today that we know from Romans 8 that all things work together for the good. Whatever I'm going through right now that I hate, whatever pain, whatever grief, whatever sorrow I'm in right now that I wish I wasn't in, Paul tells us it all works together for the good. 
for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Now listen, I'm going to ask and pray God for healing anytime I hear someone sick. I'm going to ask God to meet someone's financial needs when I hear that they're struggling. I'm going to ask God to move and work in people's lives. And I'm going to lay my head on the pillow of 1 John 5 where it says, and this is the confidence we have when we pray, that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. And so I go, God, I'm asking you to heal so-and-so. I'm asking you to change this circumstance. God, I'm asking you to repair whatever they're going through, whatever I'm going through. But I just sleep at night going, the sovereign God of the universe who's infinitely, infinitely wise and the God who is himself love, who loves me and you more than we can fathom, more than anyone else can even love us, I'm going to trust him to answer the way he sees fit. And to, to embrace good old Garth Brooks, I thank the Lord for unanswered prayers. Because if God had answered every prayer that I asked for, I'd be married to a different person right now. I wouldn't be here right now. There's so many things that would be different in my life if God had not graciously told me no many times. And the challenge for us is to trust God, trust his promises, keep them in their proper context, and understand some of God's promises are yet to be fulfilled in the future. There are a lot of promises from God that are future promises yet. None of us are sitting here going, well, we've got a promise for new glorified bodies, so let's declare that we have them today. No, we understand that's a future promise. None of us are sitting here going, well, let's believe and stand on the promise that we have eternal life today, that we're never going to die. No, we understand that's a future promise. And the word of God is given to us as a rock to stand on, that as we believe it and act it out, like the wise man, Jesus said, wise is the man who hears these words of mine and does them. He shall be like the man who built his house on the rock, and the wind and the waves came, and his house stood strong. The foolish man is the one who hears these words of mine and does not do them, and the wind and the waves came, and his house was destroyed. In light of whatever we might be going through in life, are we going to stand on God's word and act and obey no matter what? Pastor Stephen, what about when it looks like God lied? What about if he promised this and that didn't happen? Well, one, are we claiming something as a promise that's not a promise, like Luke 2.52? Two, is it something that's not a promise for us today? Three, well, not for us. And then three, is it a promise that's not for us today yet? And it's something that's supposed to, like Jeremiah 29, 11, give us a hope for the day that will come to where in the suffering that we are in, we can go, man, I know it's coming. And I can be content in Christ right now. God has given me what I need right now in the presence of God indwelling me through the Holy Spirit. God has given me contentment in Jesus Christ right now. Where Paul could say, whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content because I've got Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you are the promise keeper we sang about. Promise keeper. Light in the darkness. That is who you are. And God, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would guard us from error, from misunderstanding, misapplying, or taking cherry-picked verses out of their context. Help us to know your word 
to divide it rightly and to be like the wise man who hears your words and does them. That we would not be hearers of the word only, but we would be doers also. God, I ask ultimately today if there's anyone who doesn't know you in this room or listening online, that by your Holy Spirit you would help, that you would open their eyes to see the truth, to believe your word like Abram did and so many others, and be called righteous by their faith in God. That you would bring people into your family today, that you would make believers out of unbelievers, that you would make people alive that were dead in sin. That is our hope, that is what we pray for, that's what we long for. And God, I ask today that you would help us to have patient endurance, looking forward to the day that you will answer each of your promises in the timing that pleases you and gives the most glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.